0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Before Gandhi, before Martin Luther King, before Nelson Mandela, there was Jesus of Nazareth, who two millennia ago said things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And our image of Jesus for the most part is this hippie kind of guy who was anti-establishment and anti-violence. And scripture will show us that Jesus was indeed for the most part anti-violence, anti-retribution, anti-vengeance. However, calling Jesus a pacifist would be grossly inaccurate by every measure of the word. He was, as the Old Testament prophecies would predict, a warrior, a warrior in every way, a warrior. And the way Jesus warred against the enemy, now the enemy isn't the Roman Empire or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but the enemy in Jesus' world was the trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the way he warred against this enemy was not with a sword or spear, but with a cross. So it comes as no surprise that Jesus will call us his disciples to follow in his way, to follow the way of the cross. Let's put my picture up. And this picture, it's a picture painted by an artist named Rembrandt, and he painted this painting in 1633, and he calls it the Raising of the Cross. He painted it for Prince Frederick Henry of Orange, and it's now kept presently in a museum in Munich. And this is one of the classic paintings depicting the crucifixion but over the years people have discovered something really interesting about this painting let's zoom in now you see at the foot of the cross is a man wearing blue with a blue beret now you don't have to take a course in first century apparel to know that in that day in the first century in jerusalem no one was, prob- no one was wearing a beret berets probably didn't exist and so who is this man with the beret and everyone would note that Rembrandt, in his painting, his depiction of Jesus on the cross, would paint himself into the painting. And this was a self-portrait almost. This is the first selfie. Okay? And so Rembrandt painted himself at the foot of the cross. Why did he do that? Because Rembrandt saw himself as a part of the crucifixion story. It was not something that happened some 1,600 years ago, but it was a present reality he was still experiencing. That Jesus was not put on the cross just by the Roman soldiers, by the religious authorities of the day, but Jesus was put on the cross by humanity's sin. Rembrandt's sin put Jesus on the cross. Therefore, he painted himself into that painting, into that story. Today, we are going to attempt to write ourselves into the story of scripture. Many times when we read scripture, when we read certain commandments, certain stories, it, we read it at a distance. This is something that happened a bunch of years ago. This is something that Jesus said specifically to his disciples and there is little to no implication or maybe we pick the parts that we like and we apply it to, into our lives. But today we are going to attempt to literally write ourselves into the story of scripture, to put ourselves into the story. And that looks like reading the instructions of jesus to his first century disciples and taking it as very his very literal direct instruction to us 21st century disciples taking the instructions of jesus to first century disciples and taking it quite literally into our 21st century context are you still following me and it's with that that we take a look at matthew chapter 16 Let's have my verses up. <clears throat> Very nice color today. You can see, right? Very good. Okay, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Let's go. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day he be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him always a good idea. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, catch this, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now this is a really familiar passage of scripture, but I'd like to just draw us to some Observations, if you allow me to. Even if you don't, I have a mic, so deal with it. Just to clarify, a line where Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, Satan is not a nickname or a pet name or a term of endearment that Jesus had for Peter. You know, oh, Peter, you Satan. You know, no, no, no. It was not. One of those, like, you devil, you scum of the earth, you demon from hell. No, no, it was not a term of endearment. If there was, like, a list of things that you don't want to be caught by the Messiah, Satan will probably be on the top of that list, <laughs> right? But if you read down further, okay, Jesus elaborates, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And this is a brilliant insight into the human condition. The way that Satan has access to you and me is when, is through our refusal to adopt the way of the cross. The way Satan has a foothold in your life is through your blatant refusal to adopt the way of the cross, the way of Jesus. Now catch this in verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple... Catch that next word. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Must deny themselves. And we're going to revisit that word shortly. But here's a thought. Discipleship and denying yourself for the most part in the modern church has become an option. And in the church today, we are guilty of making a lot of things that Jesus calls essential, optional. And we often call radical what Jesus demands of all believers. Whoever wants to follow Jesus must deny themselves. Not should, not ought to, must. At the center of the way of Jesus is a symbol. And we're all familiar with the symbol. It's the symbol of the cross. Now the cross might mean different things to you. It might mean an architectural piece on a building. It might mean a sentimental song song. Or it might mean a piece of jewelry. But the cross, in every sense of the word, is a symbol of death. The call to take up our cross, in the words of Jesus, is a call to come and die. To come and die. Now, that, in our urban, fast paced, educated, upwardly mobile, hurried city, just sounds absolutely absurd. The barrage of cultural messaging that we receive constantly says the exact opposite. Every message, advertisement and charge is about self-fulfillment. The BBC has a documentary on the rise of the advertising industry and consumerism and they titled it, this entire documentary, The Century of Self. You can find that on YouTube. What an apt description for our current cultural climate. Popular thoughts that are characteristic of this century are some of them. Nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of me getting what I want. If anything or anybody does, that is oppression. And if I can't get what I want, I cannot be happy. And These are thoughts that have permeated culture and have shaped the way we live in the world today. That these thoughts, if I'm reading the words of Jesus rightly, is at best a little off-base. John Mark Comer, one of my favourite teachers and authors, says this about our current cultural climate. We have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. Now this is just a fancy word for sacred. New word. Just as in an earlier time, it was never thought fitting to deny God. Now it seems never right to deny oneself. Slogans abound, follow your heart, be true to yourself, don't let anyone tell you what to do. You do you, boo. All of this is the orthodoxy of our culture. Last line. Take up your cross. is now heresy. That is such an accurate reflection of our current cultural climate. And this culture that I'm speaking of is not just the worldly culture. Church culture in general. Take up your cross. of taking... Your cross has now become heresy. We live in a tension between the invitation of Jesus, deny yourself, and the mantra of our culture, you can have it all. We live in that tension. Whether you are aware of it or not, living on planet Earth today requires you to navigate that tension where you're pulled by the lure of culture that says to you that you can have all you want. You can live a life of comfort, luxury, while at the same time, live a Christ-filled life. That tension is what I want to speak into today. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Overall, all of us, we just can't envision a good life without a version of us getting all that we want. Is that true? Or am I just the only one who's in a work in progress. We just can't envision a good life, a fulfilling life, a satisfied life without a version of us getting all that we want. Our happiness is inextricably tied to us getting the life that we want. It could be your career, marriage, or certain social or financial status. These aren't bad things. Hear me in this. These aren't bad things. But how does our desires, good or bad, is the question I'm coming to, fit with our call to deny ourselves? How does these desires, pure as it may be, in your own worldview, how does this fit with the call for us as Christ followers to deny ourselves? Can we truly live as disciples to Jesus and still keep a whole of certain desires and place it seemingly outside of the jurisdiction of God? Now, I shared this uh, myth, story. I've tried my best to find uh, you know, accurate teaching on it, but uh, there's this urban legend that goes, when the Knights of Templar uh, were going to battle before they uh, went on a crusade, they would get water baptized before they went on the crusade. And as they entered into the baptismal waters, they would be in full armor, and they would unsheath their sword, and as they were lowered into the baptismal waters, which is a symbol of death and new life surrender to God. As they entered the baptismal waters, they would unsheathe their sword and stick it out of the water and their whole body would be submerged, just not the sword. As if to say, and this is a symbol to say that, Jesus, you can have all of this, but what I do with this, you don't have a say over. Now this is a weird, funny, hilarious picture. But for most of us, it might not be a sword. Uh, Hopefully all of us, it might not be a sword. You never know, you never know. But it might be your career that you stick out of the water. It might be your marriage that you stick out of the water. Family, certain drives, ambition, your insatiable need for more, success. These things that you stick out of the water and you say to Jesus that, Jesus, you can have all of this. You can have my Sundays. You can even have prayers for me. But what I do with this, what I think about this, you have no say, no jurisdiction over. As the cliche goes, it's either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. At the center of our apprenticeship to Jesus is a symbol, the cross. And tragically, we have lost the gravity and power of this image in our modern world. What it requires of us is lost or ignored in our culture. The cross is a man beaten, humiliated and killed. But catch this, that man did so willingly as we look at the invitation of Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, we have to wrestle with the call of self-denial in the age of self-fulfillment. Now, this is my sermon title to get today. Postures of our time and place, self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment. Postures of our time and place, self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment. Now, there's, uh, there's many dynamics that we have to wrestle with as believers, but one of the more fascinating ones and things that I've really uh, given myself to is this whole concept that, an idea that believers are to live in the world but not be of it. And the New Testament's language for it, it calls us aliens. Mm-hmm. Aliens in, in, in this world. And that in but not off IBNO thing really, really uh, intrigues me. And one of the things that we attempt to do here in our church is to uh, give you biblical teaching, biblical principles that are relevant for the culture in which we live in. And I believe that uh, one of the goals of pulpit ministry is for us to be relevant to culture, to speak into our current cultural climate, what's happening in the world around us, what we are sent into, but also to uh, create in us a sense of reverence for God's word and resilience to culture. We want to be relevant, we want to speak into culture, but at the same time, to be in but not off, we are called to be resilient against culture and reverent of God's word and God's command. And now this is a concept, postures of a time and place that I'll revisit uh, throughout the year. I, I plan to visit a bunch of times and uh, some of the stuff that I'll talk about uh, in the weeks ahead, not next week, some weeks. I will just split up, you know, it's going to be fun, you know, we don't have to write block and block and block. We'll just, you know, be free and all that good stuff. But some of the stuff I want to talk about, let's have my next slide up. I'll talk about uh, simplicity in an age of consumerism, community in an age of uh, hyper-connectivity, conviction in an age of tolerance and grace in an age of criticism. Uh, also, another one that they made, made it up on that list patience in an age of hurry. Patience in an age of instant gratification. That's the right one, patience and age of instant gratification. So we're going to re- revisit these concepts uh, through the year. Now, when I say self-denial, you might think that that self-denial is like deluded. Like he is in denial over like how bad he looks in pink. He is like in denial. He's deluded. And you might think that that kind of self-denial, right? And, you know, of course, I'm going to go to a definition, but who better to define what self-denial is than the man The myth, the legend, Dallas Willard. He will help us define what self-denial is. (laughs) Dallas Willard. He's not a personal friend of mine, but I love him so much. Self-denial, he says, is the overall settled condition of life in the kingdom of God, better described as death to self. In this and this alone lies the key to the soul's restoration. Christian spiritual formation rests on this indispensable foundation of death to self and cannot proceed except insofar as that foundation is being firmly laid and sustained. Now, Dallas believes that if this foundation is not set, all the teachings you have heard, the concepts we have explored, stuff that we read in Scripture, will not take root, will not be secured unless this foundation is laid and set. To Dallas, this is elementary, in our discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus, that it starts off with a call to come and die. Surrender and obedience. I know you're expecting a sermon that goes like all about that grace, about that grace, but I'm so sorry to disappoint. No devil. Okay. Now this concept, of death to self, dying, denying yourself. Ugh. This concept might be odd and tough for some of you to grasp and comprehend because it so goes against the grain of our culture. The closest thing we have to self denial in today's world is health and fitness. Deny yourself decadent, good, chocolate, sleeping in, and go to the gym and work out. But even, okay, even if you skip the 20 p spicy McNuggets, which is back, by the way. McNuggets is back. And you go to the cult of your choice. CrossFit, bar, spin, F45, kettlebells. You go to the cult of your choice. It is a cult. Let's all admit. It is a cult. Okay? That's why you have culture. Cult you are. Okay, hey. This will be the sermon excerpt. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. You go to the crowd of choice, you deny yourself, you go to the crowd choice. Catch this. It is still, it is still a further mechanism for self-fulfillment to look and feel good. You deny yourself, but it's still a further mechanism for self-fulfillment. It is denying, okay, with another want in mind. Nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying don't go to the gym, like, let's all, like, binge and, like, accept each other. But... <laughs> But I would like to suggest to us today that the self-denial that Jesus calls us to is dramatically different from, from that. For starters, one, there seems to be no immediate gratification, reward, or trade-offs on the horizon. Go and die if you want to follow me. There is no immediate gratification like, hey, if you say you go and die, like I give you a magic pony. None of that, right? There is no immediate gratification, reward, or trade-off. Number two is this, and I want to zone in on this, Jesus in this call, to self, a call for us to deny ourselves, isn't asking us to deny ourselves, but to deny our self. Not to deny ourselves, but to deny our self. Now, sometimes when people interpret this scripture, they go like, Jesus calls to deny ourselves. That means all that we want, every comfort, my need for a partner, my need for food and a proper bed, deny, you know, and like deny yourselves and like no comfort, no nothing. You eat insect, you, you like skip on the floor. Like deny yourselves, you know, and we, we go like, ah, you know, and, and we think it's like eat insects and skip on the floor, you worthless shrimp. Yeah. Now yourself, yourself, right? Everybody say yourself. Yourself. You as the whole, as a whole, is the object of Jesus' love, delight, and is of surpassing worth to the God who created everything. He loves you; he delights in you. You are of worth. Now, yourself—echoes yourself. Okay, it's a different story. Yourself, scholars would define as disordered desires or the flesh. Now this might seem really odd, right? what is disordered desires? What is the flesh? What is the self? Now to me, this is how I describe it. The self is the intersection point where deceptive ideas, lies, false truths about God, His kingdom, and you that originates from who the who the, the Bible calls the devil and the pull of sinful society, the culture we live in, in what the Bible calls the world where the devil, the lies from the devil, the pull from the world, meet, And it meets with your disordered desires, desires that are out of whack in God's kingdom. It's where they meet and join forces with our disordered, ungoverned desires, also known as the flesh, in the language of Peter, to wage war against our soul. Now I know, many, many words. Basically, devil, woe, flesh, disordered desires meet war for your soul the flesh which is desire that is influenced by the lies of the devil and the pool of the fallen world we live in that self is what we are admonished by Jesus through scripture to deny and self-denial is at the center of our apprenticeship to Jesus now you might think to yourself like this self-denial stuff why do I even want that? Why do I ever want to do that? That sounds hard and difficult. Now Jesus, the brilliant teacher that he is, has already the answer for you in the next verse. Let's have the next slide up. Whoa, great timing. Yell, you're a great projectionist. Speak that lu- speak that truth over you. <laughs> verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. We're going to zone in on verse 26. One of the things that we observe uh, when we read Scripture is that so much of Jesus' teachings in the Bible doesn't really end with a commandment or a call to action. Let me explain. A lot of Jesus' teachings simply end with a statement on reality, a statement on how life ought to be. A few examples is this. It is better to give than to receive. The last shall be first he who lives by the sword shall die by it. No one can serve two masters. Now, are these commands or ought tos? No. These are simply statements that Jesus makes quite simply about how life works. And in this passage of scripture, we see one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom, a statement about how life works. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 26, what good way it be for someone to gain the whole world yet fulfilled the soul?" Oh, sorry, verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's one of the great paradoxes of the kingdom. And the suggestion is this, that if you want to really live, if you want to really live, then first you have to die. If you want to really live, like then you... First, have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book The Cause of Discipleship, writes: When Christ calls a man, He bids him to come and die. Now, this is strong language. What does this mean to come and die? For a lot of people, and we don't make light of this, it's a quite literal death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed by the SS in Nazi Germany. Our brothers and sisters who live in persecuted countries uh, are killed. Uh, On a daily basis, Open Doors USA, a non-profit that sheds some light on persecution today. uh, Earlier this year, published findings that revealed to us that on an average, 11 Christians are martyred every day for their faith. This goes back even to the first century with Jesus and his disciples. James was beheaded in Jerusalem by Herod. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. John was dipped in alive in boiling oil and left on the wrong in the Mediterranean to die. Now, I hope that should the need ever arise, that I will be willing to suffer the same fate and uh, even death for my faith in Christ. And, uh, and I hope that this is something that you put in front of you as well, uh, as you consider your faith in God. But thankfully, for most of us uh, living in the city that we live in, the context that we live in, at least for now, that's not a problem or an issue. For most of us, that call to come and die is not a literal death, but a metaphoric one. And I think Jesus clearly has that in mind. In his language, it is a call to deny oneself. John Calvin, who I like never quote, sums up the Christian faith in two words, self-denial, self-denial. Jesus' call to come and die Is a literal death for some, but self denial for all. Self denial, my friends, is the true litmus test of whether we have made Jesus king and lord of our lives. And often we call radical what Jesus expects of every believer. We are guilty of making optional what he calls essential. The gospel proclaims Jesus as king. The great problem is that we, as good 21st century citizens of democracy, don't like kings. The English chopped off uh, the head of Charles I and established a republic under the Puritan Oliver Cromwell. The Russian Tsar Nicholas died in a hail of bullets while his young children were shot and kicked to death to prevent the royal line from continuing. We prefer democracy, yet God is still king. N.T. Wright writes this. Our anti-royal democratic heritage makes the idea of living under a king hard stomach. Often as believers, we wish for the kingdom but do not want to acknowledge the authority of the king. For at the heart of kingship is the concept of authority. Authority is the surrendering of autonomy, absolute freedom and free choice to someone else. That is what it means to live. With a king, under a king. We are persuaded by our culture that we can have fulfillment without submission to authority. And unwittingly, we take this formation into the practice of our faiths. Let's read a familiar passage story, a familiar scripture in Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is a familiar story in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And that was Jesus. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. Of God. Now the problem, okay, with this man isn't that he did not believe in Jesus as a rabbi, as Messiah, as a prophet, or more than that, as Lord. He believes in Jesus, in who Jesus says he is. The problem that this man faced is that he was not willing to pay the price to be an apprentice of Jesus. The issue that we all face here isn't apprenticeship versus atheism. The issue here is apprenticeship versus a non-committal, consumeristic faith that wants the benefit of Jesus without the cost, the kingdom without the cross. That is what we want. We want to still be in control, yet have all the benefits. In a book, The Divine Commodity, we read a confession by author and speaker Sky Jetanti that many of us carry in our hearts but would be afraid to whisper aloud. He says this. <clears throat> my secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. Hallelujah. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. Amen. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than go through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we want. Whether we choose to admit it or not, we will want a God that we can control, predict and bend to our will. The truth is, I, like all of you, want the best of both worlds. And I call this the Hannah Montana con- conundrum. If you don't know who Hannah Montana is, on the left, she's an average high school girl who goes to school. On the right, she's a pop star diva who rocks out every night. This is the Hannah Montana conundrum. It's the same person. It's not twins. It's not Mary-Kate and Ashley. But the story goes, Hannah Montana, high school girl, you know, and by night, she's a pop star. I know, so relevant, whore. But anyway... We all, whether we watch Hannah Montana or not, or whether we like her, face this conundrum, the Hannah Montana conundrum. We want the best of both worlds. We want the kingdom of God, yet we still want to adhere to the way of the world. We still want to be popular light. For me, I want to be generous, but I also want to be really rich. I want to be a pastor, but I also want to live like a superstar and wear super cool sneakers. I want character, but I don't want any of the suffering. I want humility, but I'm not willing to endure humiliation. I want patience, but I don't want to wait. I want to grow in kindness, but I don't want to be surrounded by people who test my patience daily on a daily basis ever. These people. I want to hear God's voice, But I refuse to wake up early in the morning to sit, wait, tarry. I want the life of Jesus, and I know you do too. But I don't want to take up the cross of Jesus. Catch this, the default setting of the human condition post-Eden is not atheism, but idolatry. It is to aim our desire not at God, but whatever your desire of choice is. Marriage, family, career, money, sex, education, stamp on your passport, success, popularity, or even comfort, whatever it is. That's Willet has this to say. <clears throat> to live in the flesh is to live with uncrucified affections and desires. It's simply a matter of putting them in the ultimate position in our lives. Whatever we want becomes the most important thing. This is what happens when we are living apart from God. We make our desires ultimate because they are all we have. We look to them as if they were everything in our lives, thinking of my worth, my glory, my appearance, thinking of my power to sustain myself. To live in the flesh is to make our desires what we want, the ultimate, to put our desires on the throne of our lives. And we do so by dethroning God from our lives. The point is this. Self-denial is the painful and arduous process where we reorder our desires through practice and perseverance to the way of Jesus. I'll read that to you again. Self-denial is the painful and arduous process when we reorder our desires through practice and perseverance to the way of Jesus. Those desires that you have, they are not wrong, but they need to be placed in the right order. The flesh is, by definition, disordered desires. Desires ungoverned, untethered to the will and heart of God. And self-denial is where we go through that painful process of realigning what we want to what He wants. I'm making sense to you. And this leads us to a couple of questions. One, how has your apprenticeship to Jesus cost you? How has it cost you? Is there a price you had to pay to follow Jesus? By love, Luke's uh, version of the text we read in Matthew, he says this will to take up your cross daily, which seems to suggest to us that this process of self-denial is not a one-time thing. It is a daily decision. Which brings us to this question, how is your apprenticeship to Jesus costing You. The concept of paying a price of sacrifice, was it something you entertained as a young person? Or is it something you still live with and hold on today? The nature of sacrifice is this. Yesterday's sacrifice very easily becomes today's convenience. What was sacrificial five years back? Today, done over time, becomes convenient and easy. Sacrifice by nature is progressive. And this is your discipleship to Jesus, a progressive walk unto maturity, unto Christ's likeness There's a prayer we pray often here. It goes like this, remove everything that hinders love. We pray this often here. Well, what if at times the ball is in your court? We are the ones who have say and control on what hinders the love of God from being fully realized and manifest in our life? If we could seriously today consider if there are obstacles, limitations, or thresholds to our love for God, and are we okay with that? Do we hunger and thirst to experience the promised abundant life that comes with a death of self? In closing, I would like to bring us to three simple professions of people who have embraced a life of self-denial. Number one is this. His way, not mine. His way, not mine. For 17 years, the Edelman Trust Barometer has surveyed tens of thousands of people across dozens of countries about their level of trust in business, media, government, and NGOs. This year was the first time the study found a decline in trust across all four of these institutions. In almost two-thirds of the 28 countries surveyed, the general population did not trust the four institutions to, quote, do what is right. The average level of trust in all four institutions combined was below 50%. You are, if you are a millennial, part of the least trusting generation in history. The survey noted that 19% of millennials trust other millennials. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus' last words on the earth, okay? and this is, mind you, he was on the cross, suffocating in sheer pain. This was his last word. This was what he wanted to leave you with as he died on the cross. This is what he wanted to be recorded in scripture. He mustered all his strength to say these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This would be the last of seven words from the cross and we know this to be the word of trust. In the garden, the first Adam believed the lie that you cannot trust God. But Jesus, the second Adam, died on the cross with a profession of trust. Most of us here, if we asked whether whether we trust God, would almost instantly say yes. We trust God for many things, for a good life, for breakthrough, for deliverance. But I would say that it is dramatically different to trust God for stuff than it is to trust in God. We trust God for stuff when we are convinced of His power. But we truly trust in God when we are convinced of His heart, intention, and goodness that is for us. It's so different. Saying no to our most natural, primitive, self occurring desires is one of the ultimate tests of our trust in God. To literally say that your way is better than my way, that you know what will truly bring me satisfaction over what I perceive I need. David Brenner, he quotes us, St. Ignatius from Loyola, and he says this, that he said that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Think about that. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. I would like to put it to you that sin, all sin, is an attempt to find satisfaction in something else other than God. Until we are convinced of this, we will seek to control our own lives. But knowing that God sees all the moments and concerns of our lives, is committed to working all things together for good, and cares about us deeply, gives us the confidence to let go. When we trust God, we are not surrendering to chaotic forces of blind trust. We are surrendering to love. And the act of surrender allows us to be caught in an embrace that will never let us go. What might it look like? It might look like choosing the way of God. It will look like choosing the way of God over the way of the world. It will look like choosing God's way over your way it will look like prioritizing the desire of God over your most primitive, self-occurring, natural desire. It may look like choosing reconciliation over retaliation, obedience over popular opinion, calling over earthly success, his presence over possessions, and the list goes on. The next profession, and I'll, I'll wrap up soon, I promise, is this, his time, not mine. His time, not mine. The Bible tells us that we live by faith and not by sight, which leads us to the conclusion that the opposite of faith is in doubt. It is certainty and control. It is certainty and control. And to me, there is no greater refiner of our faith than time. We see men through the Bible failing this test from Abraham to Saul to Solomon. There is something about time that refines, that purifies us, that matures us. John Tyson, he says this about time. Seeking to act in our own time rather than waiting on God's doesn't accelerate the work of God in our lives. It corrupts it. How many of you have experienced that before? In the last line, time is not a commodity we can bend toward our will, but a gift God uses to test our allegiance. Do you view the waiting as a gift that is for your spiritual maturity? Or do you view it as pain, punishment inflicted to you by God. His time, not mine. It means at times, it will be inconvenient. Things will go slower than you imagine. Or, the flip side, you might be put into situations, scenarios, and positions in your own perspective prematurely. His time, not mine. And the last profession is this. His will, not mine. His will, not mine. This is right from the life of Jesus where he prays to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. Henry Nowen, which we quote so often in his church, this is a real spiritual giant, wrote a ton of books and has been so helpful to our understanding of who God is. When asked about what maturity in the way of Jesus looks like, he says this, being willing to be led where you would rather not go. Being willing to be led where you would rather not How far we progress on the journey of apprenticeship to Jesus often is about our willingness to follow Jesus into pain, confusion, self-denial, sacrificial love, discomfort, in faith that death is followed by life. Which says to us that there will be times where we will do what isn't the most comfortable, naturally occurring, or convenient. And that, I would like to suggest to you, is not religiosity. It's not striving. It is discipleship. Just because it's hard does not make it striving. Just because it's unnatural does not make it religion. Hard, unnatural, inconvenient are words that sum up what discipleship is, what denying yourself looks like. And honestly, uh, as your pastor, I know I'm supposed to be holier than thou, but I'm still a work in progress, man. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm there. You know, and In many ways, this is a daily thing, right? The nature of life is that the more we live in life, the more we accumulate, the more we have. And the way it works in the kingdom is that the more you receive, the more you're called to give. That's why self-denial, this thing called discipleship, is a daily process. You might have made the decision 10, 20 years ago, but you're still making decisions today. You still have to make decisions today. And in many ways, this is going to be an ongoing, lifelong journey that we embark together as a community. Amen? Now, usually I end my messages with a like, uh, very like profound and like heart-wrenching kind of story that like leaves you all silent and like, oh, wow, what a story. You know? and, and that's kind of like my clincher. You know? That's like the knockout uppercut kind of punch but today I'm just going to end with like a real mundane and I so dread Chinese story because it's so mundane it's so dumb and it's so like ordinary and pointless but uh, I'm doing so with a point in mind. Now on Friday uh, I had a really mundane day you know not mundane day it's just a day busy with like Very ordinary, mundane kind of stuff. You know, I had like a bunch of Skype calls. We met our contractor in the afternoon where we sat for three hours talking through what kind of laminates we want. And then I realized that Andre has a commitment issue. It's like, oh my gosh, can I live with this grain for 10 years? You know, and like, ah. You know, and threw me a spiral. And Amy is like, I just want a house. You decide everything. Which is like, so freeing and liberating. But I was like, oh, the weight of this is on me. And, And kind of a thing. But, you know. And so I was like, Wow going through this turmoil, and by the end of it, I was, like, spent, right? And I still haven't, like, written this message. And so, it was Friday, and on Friday, we have live group. And so, you know, we went home. And then at home, you know, I was, like, on the way home, I was, like, Amy, I'm not going to live group. She's, like, why? I was, like, mm, I need to uh, write my sermon. No, I don't have much time. True, I need to write my sermon. But I also had other plans in mind. You know? uh, there's a show I watch on Netflix called Designated Survivor. And uh, it's a show that I really love. Uh, it stars Kiefer Sutherland, also known as Jack Bauer from 24, as a president, as the president. What's not to love about that show? And it's, for the most part, clean, I believe. But don't, don't quote me on, on that. But I was like, I want to watch Designated Survivor. Season 3 so I was like, I'm going to binge! And prepare my sermon. And so... And so I was, I was sitting there, right, I was like, yeah, I was like, Amy, you know, I need to... Rest. And, and granted, you know, if she were to go to a group and say, Andre has to be home to write someone, a group would be like, oh, bless him, let's pray for him, kind of thing, <laughs> kind of thing. Which I hope they do, lah. Yeah, but... But, you know, uh, but in there, you know, I was faced with, like, a crossroads that many of us face in life, right? I was like, do I, like, watch Designated so Beach on Netflix or do I go to group? And, you know, I'm a pastor after all, and so I went to group. <laughs> Very mundane, very ordinary thing, and enjoyed the group. It was was very good. What's my point? My flesh, my first ordered desire, at that point in time, was to stay at home, watch Netflix, sleep, chill. Was it good? Yeah, it would have been good. Designated, survive a great plot, and very restful. (laughs) I would definitely feel rested and be able to tackle someone on Saturday. Good stuff. My second ordered desire, or the way... That you no, know, I talk about like what is important and what would have been beneficial to my soul was to go to group. And what did I do? I, I went to group. Here's my point. For some of you, this whole thing about self-denial can be a major thing. As I'm speaking now, the Holy Spirit might be breathing upon your heart to convict you about certain things, about that one major thing that you have held to in life. It might be a sin. It might be a possession that you, you have held. It might be a drive, an ambition. He might be speaking to you on that one major thing for you to let go, to deny yourself of that desire. But for most of us, it may not be that one thing. But in the coming week, there will be a thousand opportunities for you to deny yourself. A thousand chances to die. If you're a parent, there are a thousand chances to die this week. Some of them quite literal. (laughs) If you're a parent, if you have parents... There are a thousand chances for you to die this week. If you are married, there's a thousand chances for you to die this week. If you know people, there's a thousand chances for you to die this week. If you are friends with me, good gosh, there's a thousand chances for you to die this week. If you inhabit a body, there's a thousand opportunities for you to deny yourself this week. And following Jesus is about those moments when you have opportunity to choose between the flesh and the spirit between designated survivor and life group, between yes and no, between click and close the tab, you fill in the blanks. Falling Jesus is a thousand small deaths that leads to one massive life. Maybe it's a huge thing that you have to give up, or maybe it's a thousand tiny, small, ordinary, mundane deaths in the way ahead. Either way, The road to self-denial is for all. All of y'all have to deny yourself. I'll end with one final quote. And I'm ending early. Just a luxurious 1150. John Tyson. No relation to Mike Tyson. He says this. Uh, Do we have the, the briefest one? Yeah. He says this. Christianity is not primarily a plan of protection against the brokenness of the world, but a relationship with Christ in the midst of it. Let's just ponder about a statement. Wow, what a statement. When we confuse those two, we end up using God as a kind of genie to ward off our existential angst. It's amazing how often this sort of thinking makes its way into our lives. We were taught as teenagers that if we abstain from promiscuity, God will give us great sex lives and stable marriages. We've been taught that tithing, giving... God, a tenth of our income will fend off financial disaster and bring in blessing. If we live with integrity and operate according to biblical principles in the workplace, we can advance and safeguard our careers. Next slide. But God is not a genie. Say that with me. But God is not a genie. He's not a genie in a bottle. Life is not a blank canvas. And reality is too complex a thing to get our arms around. Using religion in an attempt to manipulate God merely distracts us from the goal of our faith, which is to enjoy an intimate relationship with Him. What do you struggle with? Your will versus His will, your time versus His time, your way versus His way. Today, let's make a decision to deny ourselves of placing our desires on the throne of our lives and let's make Jesus the rightful king of our lives. Can we stand?